holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. You are our everything, so we adore you. Thank you for the privilege in being here today, Lord. If you're just joining us, we've been in a series going through a book of the Bible known as Revelation. It's a series of visions, of revelations given to a man named John about the events that were transpiring in his day, but also in his generation, but also going to the end of time. And today, most of what we're going to look at deals with with the end of time. Now, if you remember when I started this series, I told you that I really started to dig in to Revelation back when I was teaching a young adult Sabbath school class. I, I got every commentary I could find, got all my different Bible versions out, and I started to study deeper than I'd ever studied before the book of Revelation. And that Sabbath school class lasted just about two and a half years. Um, and I certainly wasn't going to do a two-and-a-half-year-long sermon series, but there are many weeks that we've had already that could have been multiple sermons, multiple weeks of a sermon series, but they were all in one week. Today is definitely one of those weeks. I crunched as much as I could in to try and keep this series down to as much of a minimum as I could, but today is one of those days where I feel like I could probably have had six or seven sermons from just this week's sermon series. So you might want to buckle up. We're going to go through a lot of stuff today. See, this section of Revelation, some call it the great conflict, the great controversy, or a great war, because it spells out the great spiritual battle between God and Satan over planet Earth. It's a riveting section that introduces us to figures such as the red dragon, Michael, the beast, the second beast, the, the person signified by the number 666, and much more. It takes us behind the scenes into the spiritual realm, what was going on and what is happening in heaven as these events play out on the earth. So let's go ahead and jump into the series. It all begins with a woman and a dragon. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. So let's stop there. We were introduced in John's vision, which is a vision full of symbolism and imagery, to a pregnant woman, obviously symbolizing far more than just a woman who is pregnant. She's clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, and a crown of 12 stars. So who is this pregnant woman? Well, she represents us, the church. That is who this woman is. It's the church we all represent as being a part of that church, part of that woman. Those who believe in the Messiah, thus also looking forward to those who embrace Jesus, meaning all of us as believers, is represented by this woman. But let's 
keep reading. It next says, Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on its heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky and threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. With the woman, we have a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. The seven heads represent the number of kingdoms used to oppress God's people. Horns represent political power, so ten of them represent enormous power. And by the way, throughout the Bible, and specifically in the book of Revelation, the number ten is associated with those who are in opposition to things of God. So strong was this dragon that his tail swept away one-third of the stars and threw them to the earth. The dragon's leading away of one-third of all of the angels in rebellion. Those stars represent the angels, and and we know that the devil, when he was thrown out of heaven, brought with him one-third of those angels. The dragon is the enemy of the woman. We know the woman is the church, so the dragon is the enemy of the church and wants nothing more than to destroy her baby. So who is that baby? Let's look and see what John tells us. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. That son who was born is the one who will rule with an iron scepter. We already know from earlier in Revelation that this is a reference to Jesus himself. We read that before the dragon could try to destroy Jesus, he fulfilled his purpose here on the earth. He was born He lived a perfect life. He laid down that life for our sins, for the sins of the entire world, and was then resurrected on the third day. And then, as John's vision puts it, he was snatched away following the resurrection in an event known as his ascension back to heaven. And the people of God, the church, were were also rescued from the dragon, at least for a period of 1,200 years. And 60 days. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen a reference to that. 1,262 days, 42 months, three and a half years. It's all the same time period. And it's a reference to the tribulation, a time of intense persecution. But the good news here was that the church will be protected. We keep reading, we see this. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. See, this is a fascinating event. And it gives us a a glimpse kind of behind the scenes about what is happening in, in heaven following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
First, we're told here that the dragon is, is, the, de is, devil, is the devil or, or Satan. So who is Satan? The headline is that he was an angel, still is an angel. There are five basic things we learn about angels. First, angels are creatures created by God. They are not God themselves or in any way on equal footing with God. As created beings of God, they have intelligence, they have free will, and they are moral creatures who, like us, can choose either to obey or to disobey God. Second, they're not human. They are spirits. They, are, they do not have physical bodies as we have them, though when they interact with humans, as they often do, they often will assume a human form third thing about angels is that they are powerful far more powerful than we are it says in fact in the book of second kings it says that one angel was sent to destroy 185,000 assyrian warriors one angel was enough and here in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the world being destroyed at the end of time, it's done largely through the power of seven angels as they carry out the commands of God. So angels are created, powerful spirits. Fourth, there's a lot of them. While we only have the names of just a few, like Gabriel, Jesus made, made reference to being able to call down legions upon legions of angels, thousands upon thousands, if he needed them or he wanted them. Earlier in the book of Revelation, John said, I looked and I heard a voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. And we don't know the exact number of angels. We just know that there's a lot of them. And then finally, there are different kinds of angels. There are angels called cherubim. There are angels called seraphim. And then there are angels who seem to be the most powerful, the archangels. And who knows how many other kinds there are. But the most important separation between angels is this. There are good angels, and there are bad angels. Not all of the angels that God created stayed loyal to him. Some of them rebelled, and they now work to, to oppose the work and the will of God. In fact, that is what a demon is. A demon is a fallen angel who is chosen to rebel. The Bible says that demons have one and only one purpose, to oppose the work and the will of God. Included in the ranks is their leader, who's called Satan. Satan is also known by many other names, the devil, Lucifer, the evil one, the tempter, the deceiver, the adversary, the prince of darkness. The Bible teaches that Satan was a fallen angel, probably an archangel, who chose to enter into rebellion against God, and he led at least a third of the angels with him. Now, Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He is not God, or even close to being God. He's just, and he's also not the evil twin brother of Jesus, which, which I've read before. He is simply an angel who fell. 
who rebelled. The Bible says that Satan gave in to pride and wanted to sit on God's throne. God has allowed him to exercise his free will and to be in rebellion, just as he allows us to exercise our free will and to make choices, whether that's for or against God. And it says that like us, at the end, Satan himself will be judged, just as we are. He is to be taken very seriously. And if you have any doubt about that, all you have to do is look at what Jesus had to say about Satan. Jesus believed in Satan. He didn't think he was some myth. He didn't think he was a figment figment of someone's imagination or some cartoon character in a red suit and a tail and a pitchfork. Hopefully you don't see any of those come Monday for Halloween. He didn't think he was a figment of his imagination or projection of our minds in order to explain away the mysteries of evil. Jesus believed in him, believed that he was a real, live, spiritual being. He took Satan seriously and wanted us, his followers, to also take him very seriously. So that's a bit about Satan. So what, what do we have happening here in the heavenly realm? We're told that following the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, victory was won of such a nature that war was then waged against Satan and his angels, led by Michael, a war that Satan lost. And Satan was eventually, along with his fallen angels, cast from heaven down to the earth. Now, Michael is another name for Jesus. Now, prior to this, it would seem as if Satan was still allowed, despite his rebellion, to be part of the heavenly court, to stand before God and to accuse God's faithful who were on the earth. And we know this because we have reference to this throughout the Bible. We remember, if you go back to the book of Job, Satan standing in in the heavenly courts accusing Job or accusing Joshua the high priest of the unforgiven sin. But after Jesus' death, on the cross, Satan could no longer accuse us. His time was over. The victory was won when Jesus died and rose. He has no, Satan has no basis by which to accuse or denounce those whom Christ has cleansed and justified. And as such, Satan and his angels were, kept, were banished from heaven down to the earth. But what follows next in John's vision is the celebration of that, along with some quite sober to think about, something quite sober to think about in terms of what it all means. Let's read it. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last. Salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice, but terror will come on the earth and the sea. 
For the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. That last line sets the stage for what's to follow. Now that Satan has been cast down from heaven to the earth, he's enraged at having lost everything through the work of Christ on the cross. Knowing that there is now little time before the end and the end of whatever evil he can do, he is hell-bent on wreaking as much havoc as possible. He can no longer accuse God's people in heaven, so he now begins his campaign of persecution and terror against everyone on the earth. So what happens next? When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so that she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman but a flood of water by, through a flood of water that flowed from his mouth, but the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out of the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. So here you have a clear picture of the world in which we now live. Satan has been cast out of heaven, bound to the earth, full of murderous fury. Unable to stop what Jesus has already done, unable to destroy the woman, the church, but intent on destroying as many of those associated with the church, her children, us, as many of us as he can, that is his goal, to destroy us. And it's open warfare against the people of God. Who are those people of God? It's the people who keep the commandments, who have the testimony of Jesus. And we know that it will get darker before the dawn. Let me keep reading. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. Another instance of weird things we read in Revelation. This beast rising up out of the sea is always a reference to the Antichrist. Portrayed in John's vision as a combination of violent animals, seven heads symbolize the kingdoms used to oppress God's people. The ten horns symbolizing the kingdoms that arose after the Roman Empire broke up. The crowns symbolize the authority of the beast. So who is the Antichrist? The Antichrist is a person or an entity that is given power by Satan to enact his evil during the tribulation at the end of time. And that idea of this person being anti-Christ is real. 
They're anti-everything that Jesus stood for, everything that Jesus did. They're evil against good, lies against truth, hatred against love. But even more than that, the Antichrist is meant to be a counterfeit of Jesus, an evil demonic twist on Jesus. Instead of coming to save, the Antichrist comes to kill and to destroy. The goal is to get the world to worship Satan as opposed to worshiping God, even to the point of imitating the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The Antichrist will go through a seeming death and resurrection so that everyone will worship him. Here's how we read about that in John's vision. And I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery. But the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at the miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshipped the beast. Who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the earth was made. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. It's a terrifying scene, isn't it? But it's played out over and over again in the book of Revelation. The time when the Antichrist is fully unveiled for who he is. God's people are being persecuted, and every effort to blaspheme God is being made. If you notice, if you kind of followed through that, you saw a bunch of different counterfeits throughout this. See, Satan will try to counterfeit everything that God does. So you see counterfeits again and again when you start to dive into these passages. So who is the Antichrist? We, as Seventh-day Adventists, believe that the Antichrist is the papacy. It's not necessarily an individual pope, but the organization of the papacy. But it's not just Satan and the Antichrist here. There's a third person who arrives on the scene, forming what many have called an unholy trinity to match the holy trinity of God, yet another counterfeit. Here's what we read. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast, whose 
fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to the earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. Here we have a second beast who's also known as the false prophet. It's a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. So you have the dragon, which is Satan, the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, and with all of the secular powers, and now the beast from the earth, the false prophet, who embodies all religious compromise. He's the henchman of the Antichrist, the one who tries to spiritualize him, to try to get people to worship the Antichrist. The false prophet works on behalf of of the Antichrist, working his own miracles with demonic power, and he deceives the world. See, the idea here is, is of a religious figure who works signs and wonders as if from God, though his power ultimately comes from Satan, to get people to see him as their spiritual leader. And he then gets them to worship and to follow the Antichrist and, to, and some kind of massive Messiah figure. He even makes a statue of a, as a false idol to get them to worship it. So who is this beast out of the sea? It's where we live. It's the country we live in. But it wasn't just worship of the Antichrist that was, was at hand here but total world dominion. If we keep reading, we see this. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. What does 666 mean? As you can imagine, there have been lots of ideas put forward about what that number actually means. Some people thought that it was the number of someone's birthday, June 6, 1966. I hope that's not your birthday. It is your birthday, it kind of sucks to be you. But some have wondered if it maybe represents somebody's birthday or maybe the letters of a name. See, there was a time that people thought that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because he was in power and popular and each of his three names, Ronald Wilson Reagan, had six letters in each of them. There's some crazy ideas out there about this. Some feel it's just a symbolic number related to the number 777. The number 7 is the number for perfection or completion. So the number 6 would reflect being incomplete, imperfect, not good, but evil. And three of them would, would make it absolute. Second, what's up with the mark 
itself. You see, that mark of the beast is the counterfeit of the seal of God. Here, that mark of the beast was on its either right hand, which signifies forced obedience, or on your forehead, which symbolizes your mind, your belief, your allegiance, a mental assent to the beast, all in an attempt to pervert things. The goal of the mark was not simply to signify their submission to the beast, but control. Without the mark of the beast, you couldn't buy or sell, which means that you couldn't operate within the economy, and if you can't operate within an economy, it's pretty hard to live, to survive. This led to all kinds of wild ideas about what the mark of the beast actually entails. Is it some kind of physical stamp implemented through some kind of technology? Is it a retail barcode or even an implanted computer chip? I even heard people suggest that getting the COVID vaccine was the mark of the beast. All I can tell you is this. Getting the mark of the beast is not going to be something you have to worry about knowing whether you're getting it or not. It will clearly be attached to an acknowledgement of the beast, the worship of the beast, your submission to the beast. It will be his mark that you willingly take on yourself, knowing what it is that you are doing. So what is it? We read that it's the violation of God's commandments. It's not following his commandments because a seal of God is following his commandments. So the mark of the beast is the counterfeit of that, failing to follow those commandments. And a litmus test would be the Sabbath. The question ultimately is for each of us, are you going to follow God or not? Are you going to obey his commandments or not? The visions keep coming. This next section ends with three more of them. The first one is this, then I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion. With him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of a loud thunder. It was the sound of many harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on earth as a special offering to God. And to the Lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. Here we see that there will be those who endure the tribulation and do not bow a knee to the Antichrist. In terms of the number of them, 144,000 are listed, but I believe that that is not a necessarily a literal number. It's the same group that we saw back in chapter 7. The exact number isn't literal, but the idea and what actually happens is. It's symbolic of those who live during the time of the tribulation and who remain faithful to God. 
the ones sealed by the Holy Spirit as opposed to bearing the mark of the beast. So all of God's people, those who have dedicated your lives to him, bear that seal. Some take this group as having lived sinless lives. I just speak on that for a second. And we see that from that language. They, it, it talks about how they told no lies. They are without blame. So it makes people think that they lived a sinless life, that it's possible to live a sinless life. That's not correct. If it were possible, if even one person could live a sinless life, there would have been no need for Jesus, what he did for us on the cross. If it was even possible, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. And we, None of us can live a sinless life. That is why we need Jesus so badly. Then comes a vision of a great harvest, two harvests actually, uh, but it begins with a vision of three angels making announcements. And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted, give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as a judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon has fallen, the great city has fallen, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed. For they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. Here you have a prelude to the harvest. Three angels making announcements about judgments to both those who stayed faithful to God and also to those who didn't. There's a clear sense throughout the book of Revelation that there will be no middle ground. You either bore the seal of God and stayed faithful to that seal, or you took on the mark of the beast and worshiped the Antichrist. Anyone who makes, everyone has to make one of two decisions. There's no middle ground here. Like there's lukewarm water. It's either hot or cold. It's all or nothing. 
This first angel talks about the gospel being preached to all the world. That it's not too late to wake up, to, to surrender to him. To, and who will you worship? It's an allusion, if you look at that language, it's an allusion to the fourth commandment and to creation. Second angel talks about the consequences of rejecting God. It's a warning to the wicked. And then the third angel is an announcement to those who worship the beast. Destruction. Not an eternal hell, but eternal destruction. Only way to be saved is to worship God. With, with that in mind comes the vision of the harvest itself. Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, Swing your sickle to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long, as high as a horse's bridle. See, there are two harvests, one for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. The grain harvest, that first harvest, was always a joyful time that the early Christians associated with bringing people into God's kingdom. It was a way of talking about harvesting souls for God. Not so with the gathering and the pressing of grapes. It's clear that they're harvested and put into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And it all rested on whether they stayed faithful to God or whether they rebelled like the angels in heaven. So what is the lesson in all of this for us? Beyond knowing that the end of time, that Satan will be fully unleashed, the Antichrist, the false prophet, will assume power and control, and faith will be tested as in no other time in human history. What, what is a takeaway for us? What does it mean for us to, beyond knowing that it's coming? In fact, you see, we're told, not just once, but twice, and I'm not sure if you caught it or not when we went through it, twice during these visions, John turns to those he's writing the visions down for, and he gives them a personal word and admonition, a reminder. The first one was Revelation 13.10. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. And then again in Revelation 14, 12, it says almost the same thing. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and remaining and maintaining 
their faith in Jesus. See, we must be prepared to endure persecution patiently, remaining faithful to the very end. So if you are a Christ follower, what did you sign up for? Seriously, think about it in a serious fashion. What did you sign up for? Was it salvation? Was it getting to heaven? Did you sign up for the release from guilt and shame through the gift of grace? Did you sign up for life principles that would help you in your marriage or in parenting? Did you hope for supernatural blessings upon your finances, your career, your physical health? Were you wanting community, a sense of spiritual wholeness and fulfillment? Maybe thinking, well, yes, to all of those. But what about persecution? Did you intentionally, knowingly, consciously, purposefully sign up for persecution? If the book of Revelation reminds us of anything, it's this. You should have. A Christian who suffers for their faith, for taking a stand for their faith, or even losing their life for their faith, is often seen on this world as suffering a defeat, that it's a tragedy, that it's some sort of loss. But in the eyes of heaven, they're heroes. They're victors. They are the ones who have won because they are the ones who share in the victory of a crucified and risen lamb. We are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for these messages. As, as confusing as sometimes they may be, thank you for giving us these messages and helping us to understand them. We know that there's, there's no middle ground, that we have to make a choice. We're either for God or against him. Help us to make that decision today. Help us to realize that we're no longer slaves to fear, that we, God, are your children. Help us to make that decision. In Jesus' name.